0: Take your mind to 1938 Long Island, New York. A man bought a high-quality, extremely sensitive barometer. Now, if you don't know what a barometer is, a barometer measures atmospheric pressure and is used especially in forecasting the weather, forecasting the weather. All right, so he returned home with his new purchase and he was disappointed to discover that the needle appeared to be stuck pointing to the area marked hurricane. After shaking the barometer vigorously several times, never a good idea with sensitive equipment, it still wouldn't work, the needle still wouldn't move. So assuming it was broken, the man wrote a scathing letter of complaint to the store, and the following morning on his way to work in New York City, in the city, he mailed that complaint letter. That evening after work, he returned to Long Island to find not only the barometer was missing, But his entire house was missing as a result of what came to be known as the hurricane of the century, the hurricane of 1938. I had never heard of the hurricane of 1938, but I looked it up. It's real. Here this man had the most sophisticated device, and it was giving a warning. Hurricane! It was pinned on hurricane. He had all reason to believe it, but he angrily disbelieved it instead and oh, what a picture of disbelief. That's our part of our topic today. Uh, welcome to Community Grace, where we aim to believe in the one true God and everything he says. We have all reason to believe him and to worship him. And we're studying the book of Matthew. And if you need a bulletin, Aaron's right up here, waiting for hands raised. He'll put one in your hand. The bulletin has the sermon notes and all the other stuff to keep you uh, unified on what our church is doing. So here we are in the book of Matthew. Turn to Matthew chapter 13, if you haven't opened your Bibles already. We're going to end with the last few verses in in chapter 13, starting in verse 53. And what we're going to see is a contrast between disbelief and faith, disbelief and worship. Last week, if you were here, all of chapter 13 up until this point was eight parable stories that Jesus told to teach about his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Oh, how glorious it is. And and that was fun to study those last week together. Now, there's no mistake why Matthew in his gospel account follows all those parables, all that great teaching of Jesus with what happens next. Four events that happen right in a row. The first two are about disbelief. The second two are about growing faith and then worship. It's just perfect how he's organized this material and we get to study all of this today. So let's start with point number one, when relational disbelief affects you. When relational, so we're on the relationship perspective of disbelief, you're battling with your own beliefs and faith, and so are the people that you're in relationship with. Let's see the first thing that happens after all these parables that Jesus taught last week. What happens now? So Jesus preaching and teaching ministry, you have to to understand at this point, he'd been at it for two years. And so buzz about him, his his fame had spread all around the area. There's about one year left at this point before the cross. Starting in 13 verse 53 jesus had finished captivating and convicting hearts with his parables and it was time to move on and so he departed from there and it says he went to his hometown that's the hometown of nazareth it was a it was a two-day 40-mile journey and so let's just journey with him in your minds there jesus his disciples whoever was following him walking 40 miles and as they enter the town the area where he grew up surely he started recognizing things he started seeing the trees that he used to climb in his youth and the hillsides he used to go explore with his friends and the fields they used to play games in. And and then as he gets into town, he starts probably seeing people that he recognizes. And he goes into the synagogue where he grew up worshiping as a youth. And there he begins to teach. Let's walk with him there to see how the people there are going to respond to him. Starting in verse 53, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and are." Not all his sisters with us. Where did this man get all these things? So they heard, they see. And what happened? What was their response? Verse 57, they took offense at him. And in reply, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So what did we see there? The first thing, they're astonished by the, the things he was saying and the works that, that he was performing. He was clearly demonstrating who he was as authority, as God, God's Messiah. But they doubted that Jesus' power and authority was actually from God, and so they took offense at him. They were offended by Jesus. Jesus does that to people. Here, I think, is the key to why a prophet may not be welcomed in his home town accepted by the relationships of his family of the people who used to know him because they remember what he was like before he did not demonstrate such mighty things and now they see the change in his growth and his maturity and his holiness and now he's jesus How does this apply to us? I think that still, if people remember the way we were in our youth, especially if we were really scoundrels. I know that hits close to home to to some people here. But just think of it. Now, years go by, and you're you're changed. You've grown in maturity and holiness, and you're trying to, to, to proclaim truth to people. And people remember you in your youth, that you didn't have all this prophetic power, but also they're challenged. That if you've grown to this holiness, they examine themselves and think, I haven't grown in such holiness. And they don't like that conviction. One author puts it this way, it was unpardonable for Jesus not to be commonplace like themselves. So they heard his words, they saw his works, and, and they refused to believe in him. They had disbelief, they denied him worship, and they missed out by rejecting Jesus Based on these things, it says he did not perform any miracles in Nazareth. They didn't follow him. They didn't didn't gain anything from him. They missed out. They missed out from their unbelief. The same thing happens today. People hear God's word, and they, they hear the words of Jesus. They hear about Jesus. They see a change, changed lives all around them, and what Jesus can do in the world all around them. And they reject Jesus based on these relational biases how sad that the greatest treasure jesus himself and his kingdom which his parables described as the pearl of great price would be missed because of these kind of biases i just want to ask are you being affected in any any way by personal disbelief based on your relationships it's a heart check are you jealous or convicted based on somebody growing in their faith don't let that affect your worship, your faith in Jesus, your treasure in Christ, your growing in him. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus and your relationship with him. Now, as we move into chapter 14, Jesus, Matthew gives a striking account of public disbelief. Okay, so we've gone to relational disbelief of Jesus. Just let that sit and build, because it is building as Matthew goes on. Now he turns to public disbelief. Why is this story next in Matthew's gospel? Let's look at this. When public disbelief affects you. This is a striking account of King Herod. Herod the Tetrarch's unbelief. So this picture of Herod's unbelief. Now he's called Herod Antipas. Since that's the the region that he ruled over. And I just want to study it. You know at Christmas time we see Herod at Jesus' birth. And then there's a Herod here. There are six different Herods in the New Testament. This is the third of those Herods herod antipas at this point had heard all about jesus power and he had gotten scared as we're going to see in the text because he thought that this man doing all these things was john the baptist come back from the dead with all this power and now he was coming toward him and he was scared there's a a superstition here in his mind and so matthew pauses at this point to look back at what happened with John the Baptist with Herod and that's what we're going to pick up so I just wanted to give you that context that's what we see in these verses if this were a movie we'd see the, word, the words at the bottom of the screen meanwhile back at the palace of not the hall of justice the meanwhile back at the hall of justice <laughs> meanwhile back in the palace of Herod Antipas alright so this if this was a movie this would be a, a twisted rated R movie plot here and uh, just follow along with me in the first 12 verses of chapter 14, and you see public, government-level, massive-level massive rejection of Jesus, which we still see today. So let's glean what we can through this account. Starting verse 1, At, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, and you could just feel a panic here, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miracles and powers are at work in him for and and then Matthew gives the context for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias his brother Philip's wife you remember a few weeks ago in chapter 11 we talked about John the Baptist from prison sending word to Jesus are you really the Messiah he had some doubt um, like we all have doubt so he's in this prison for this reason and and now Matthew's going to give us all the, the details here because it fits this part of his gospel account of Jesus All right, I hope you're tracking with me. Uh, Verse 4, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. This is an incestuous relationship that Herod was in. And John called him out. And so so Herod put John in prison. Verse 5, and though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Ah, politics, right? Verse 6, but when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company, and pleased Herod and his friends. This is the kind of dancing that is not appropriate. He ple- They pleased them so much in this banquet of revelry, verse 7, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Foolish, foolish king. Creepy king. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, because of his, but because of his oath and his guests, the Felt the pressure. He commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. What a terrible story. Verse 12, And the disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Why is this story here in the workings of Jesus? Well, let's see what we learn here. John the Baptist Great man. Jesus called him the greatest prophet ever to live. We've studied him twice so far in the series. And here he was in trouble for speaking the truth in public to the authorities. Now remember that. In the public square, this is what the, disciples, the apostles went on throughout the book of Acts to model this as well. We proclaim our faith privately and publicly in the public square, whatever the cost, whatever may happen. That's following Jesus. John the Baptist had done that. Herod's disbelief in everything John was saying resulted in severe consequences, which does send a message to us that there could be severe consequences for following Jesus. We've got that, right? If Jesus is your greatest treasure, it doesn't matter. And Those consequences are always worth it. Like one author said, it is better to lose a courageous head like John the Baptist than to have a useless head and keep it. So, that's from John the Baptist's perspective. Now, here's Herod's perspective. Here he was, a king, a worldly authority, under all the pressure, just like leaders in the public world are, any time, at our time too, there's a lot of pressures, the power of the spirit of the age. The official term for that is the zeitgeist, the German term that means in every age there's a dominant spirit of the age that's in the driver's seat of culture and we need to address those pressures of our day and be like those who follow Jesus all along history and proclaim Jesus, how he's different, how he's better, how his truth is better than whatever the spirit of the age is that's opposing Christ. I took a few of my girls last week to Lakeland Christian Academy just a few days ago. They were having a worldview workshop and it was enjoyable. We were there and Rob Mansfield, one of the teachers there, presented on a worldview and critical race theory, which is certainly, I don't think any surprise to anybody here, part of the dominant spirit of the age today. And one of the points that he made was, and he was talking about the spirit of the age and, and there's, there's, there's that kind of thing, some kind of worldview has the driver's seat. In the culture of the world and right now the most influential power today that's in the driver's seat is cultural marxism it's been building for some time but just in the last couple de- decades now is just sweeping through and one of its main tactics to destroy traditions is violence confusion chaos division and all these things that it pushes and pushes are caused to divide confuse cause violence that's its stated goal Against all traditional values and norms, which include freedom and liberty, includes the family. Destroy the family, end the the family unit. Marriage, right now, gender is the big push. And most significantly, what stands in its way the most and always has Jesus, the church, Christians. It's a spiritual battle, it's an all out war. And that just has the, the driver's seat in the culture right now. Now, Jesus is still king on the throne and always will be. And he's allowed these things, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, these cultural movements, for his purposes. But we can rest assured he's still in control. But we need to know what we're up against in each generation so we can remain steadfast and wise and understand the times that we live in so we can stand for him worship him serving him i just wanted to announce that we're planning to get together with several other churches in the area in the near future to have a workshop on this very topic hopefully that'll be soon of course we'll let you know when that comes but that's the kind of thing that happens now in in the public and that disbelief that public disbelief does that affect you absolutely and your faith it can And I want to appeal to you to be like John the Baptist and what Jesus teaches, and let that strengthen your faith and not weaken it. No reason to fear. Okay, now, both of these stories set up for a clear shift. Now, Jesus moves from those who do not believe, who would not believe him. They were filled with disbelief. Now, into a couple more stories, accounts of events, of where people did believe and had growing faith all the way to full-out worship. Let's see, number three when need grows your faith. That's what I titled this. This is the story of the feeding of 5,000 men. It starts in verse 13. It's another very well-known story. It's a mysterious and magnificent story. What Jesus does on this hillside and all the things that are going on here. Now, Matthew and all four Gospels report on this. This is one of the few stories that all four Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, report on Matthew emphasizes in his report on the growing faith of the disciples. Let's start in verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, that's the beheading of John, just imagine, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Not, not surprising. He wanted to get away, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Here's a picture of crowds in that area. Jesus attracted crowds wherever he went. I mean, I, we would want to follow too and go see what was going to happen next. Now, if that was following you, how many here would, would need to get away sometime? Yeah. All of us would eventually. So he, was withdrew, he withdrew to pray and to rest often, especially after hearing of John's death. But the crowds found him, they swarmed him, and how did he respond? Verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw the great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. He didn't send them away, he wasn't mean, he wasn't impatient, he had compassion on them. And now with these crowds, Jesus is going to test his followers. Verse 15, now when it was evening, he'd spent all day there it was evening the disciples came to him and said this is a desolate place and the day is now over send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves before it's too late jesus said here's the test of his disciples and how how we see their growing faith here ready i pray our faith grows here too jesus said they need not go away you give them something to eat there is the test how would the disciples respond? Verse 15, they said to him, we only have five loaves here and two fish. All right. The disciples failed that test. Here's how. They looked at their, their circumstances, thinking in human terms, physical world that we live in, limitations. They knew Jesus' power. They'd seen it for two years. But their focus is still on the tough situation, the physical limitations. And they said, we can't feed them. Here's the point. When our minds are stuck on our physical limitations, on what we can control, what we can achieve in our own human power, we focus on the can't and we miss out on what Jesus can do. Never forget, he is the God of the impossible. I just have this on the screen so you see it in print. Jesus is the God of the impossible. And he proves it over and over again. He doesn't want us to forget that. So here's what happens. Verse 18, he said, "You just see him, I'm going to prove it to you once again. Bring the fish and the loaves to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and two fish This is significant what he did first. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Never forget that everything begins with what? Prayer. We follow Jesus' model, and everything begins with praying first. So think of any any tough situation that you're in, okay? Any tough situation that you're in, where you might say, this is overwhelming, I'm so stressed, I can't do this. Follow Jesus, trust in Jesus. First thing he did was pray, That brings in his power into the situation. So he looked up, he prayed to his father, he said a blessing, then he broke, then he does the miracle. Then he provides the needs. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. So you look at a crowd of about fifteen to 20,000 people here, all fed, all believing, to some extent at that point, that Jesus is the God of the impossible. And he's saying that same thing to you today. Through his Holy Spirit, through his word, as we read about this, We see he prayed, he fed, he had the disciples help, and he helped them see their insufficiency to do it on themselves. They saw that now. Have you seen that? And then he saw that he is fully sufficient to care for the need, to provide. He provided a feast that no one thought possible just an hour before. But notice he just, Jesus is like this. God is like this. He just kind of winks and says, he didn't just stop at meeting the needs. Look at verse 20 again. He produced an overabundance. Twelve baskets left over. How many disciples were there? Twelve. It's like he gave them a a constant reminder of of his sufficiency to trust him that they had to carry out with them. I'm not going to forget that likely when I'm carrying the reminder this overstuffed basket of leftovers from this miracle. God will do the same thing in your life today. This is the king that we follow, that we worship. He's growing this faith in them and in us today. I love Philippians 4.19. that just says it flat out, and we can memorize this and believe this. Listen, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So look up, pray a lot, call out to God, trust him, have eyes to see what he can do. And that leads us into worship. And that's exactly where the text goes next. So title point four, when we arrive at worshiping the king. He's got our attention. He's proving his sufficiency and his power, directing us to come to him and now here is where Matthew goes next. The finale of our day today. And Matthew tells us what a life of following Jesus is like. like It's amazing. It's hard. It's risky. We're close to God, though, and we see His power. And all along the way, our faith continues to grow up until we fall down and worship Him. Let's see what happens. Verses 22. Oh, and immediately he he made the disciples get up into the boat and go before him to the other side. Okay, so they just fed. They've got their their reminders there. He said, okay, now you guys get in the boat. Take your baskets. There they are, 12 guys, 12 baskets. And he said, now go to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. It only takes us a couple seconds to read that, but just picture that. Okay, so he's getting them in the boat. He's dismissing the crowds. That probably took a long time. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain to pray, him by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. All right. So let's develop this a little bit. What do we see? Once again, Jesus does whatever it takes to get alone and pray. First, there's a reason he does what he, what he did here. He, he puts the disciples on a boat and he launches them. And they said, wait, 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 you're not coming with us, Jesus? And he said, nope. <laughs> he pushes them out to the sea. And he says, Go across the sea of Galilee. And it says, it's going to say, this is the fourth watch at night. This is like three o'clock in the morning um, by the time they get out to the middle of the sea. So evening had come. It was dark, pretty windy. The weather wasn't good. Dark, scared. These were fishermen. I mean, some of them were fishermen, some weren't. But they didn't go out in the middle of the night on a stormy night. In the middle of the sea, across the sea, they were very uncomfortable. Jesus is sending them into very uncomfortable territory. He does the same thing with us. Just just picture it. Picture the spiritual metaphor here of, wait, he's asking me to do things that are very uncomfortable. Scary, even. And he says, yes, go. Now that's them. Now he goes and dismisses the crowds. And then he goes and prays again. There's a lot going on here. When the Now, in verse 24, let's pick up there. The scene flashes back to the disciples out in the middle of the sea. It's dark. Now it's the fourth watch of the night, about three o'clock in the morning. They're out in the middle. of. Let's see what predicament they're in. Verse 24, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, which means they're exhausted and at the end of their hope, can we relate to that? He came to them. Walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, initially, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, immediately, Jesus didn't leave them hanging. Jesus spoke to them, saying three things. And we're going to look at these. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. He came to them. Yeah, he sends them out into the dark sea, but he came to them. They began to panic and fear. I think we might have been too, a little afraid, of seeing that. But he calms them. He calms them by saying three things. And I want you to hear these today. He's speaking to you. Take heart, take courage. Because it is I. Just think of that. The great I am. It is I. I am the one who created the sea that you're on and the night that you're in. I, who you believe and follow, who you've seen, deliver, and work miracles, and learned all the truth from. I And so he says, third, do not be afraid. And he is the same basis of our confidence and our faith and our trust and our worship today. This man who is God, Jesus. Peter gets that right away. He gets all that right away. And he takes a literal leap of faith. He jumps out of the boat. Hey, Jesus, I'm coming out to you. We love Peter, right? He, he, he acts first and then thinks next. He's a great leader, though. Let's see what he does. Verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come uh, to you on the water. He's got a leg overboard. You can just see it. And Jesus said, come. And so Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. How cool is this? Great job, Peter. You're showing amazing faith here. But what can we learn from Peter. This is amazing faith, eyes on Jesus. But, verse 30, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? See, everything was going fine. Everything was going amazing. Great things were happening. Until what? What changed? He took his eyes off Jesus and put them on the circumstances all around. Boom. It totally derails us, our life. Look at this passage in Hebrews, where I'm just sure the writer of Hebrews has this event here somewhat in mind when he says in in the first two verses of Hebrews 12, these are amazing verses, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which so easily entangles. Okay, there is a sin that entangles us. There is the weights of the world, the things that we would take our eyes off of Christ and look look at all these pressures, all these duties. I'm overwhelmed, I'm tired. This tragedy's happening and this suffering is happening. Oh, plus, there's a sin that so easily entangles me that I keep sinning, I keep sinning. All this, I'm gonna keep my eyes on that, get worried and filled with shame and guilt. All those, our eyes are off Jesus, but what does Hebrews say? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Don't you think he might have had this story with Peter in mind? And what a vivid example. So when we don't have our eyes on Jesus, they are on ourselves. They're on the situations, maybe the idols that are not God and certainly the sins that so easily entangles us. And so I just want you to to determine what is it that gets your mind and your eyes so preoccupied that they don't focus on Jesus and his power and his truth and his calling and his promises in your life? What are the distractions, the responsibility, the, the stresses, the idols, and the sins that so easily entangle us? What has you in its bondage? For a lot, it's anger. I just can't get over that lust is a big one this is we are in a very lust centric society sexual sins have become so common today and so many people are swept up into that addiction get help don't be alone don't be isolated that's what the devil wants you get into a small group a discipleship group get counseling get a mentor all those things that god puts into place be in the word and in prayer every day and you'll have victory over all of Those are God's provisions to help you walk in the Spirit and to keep our eyes focused on Christ and living under God's power, not our own. Jesus teaches this. Peter demonstrates it. Victory comes when we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. But did you notice what, what else Jesus and Peter teach here? With even just a quick return, a call out to God. It's like, okay, I've been doing this. I keep doing this. I'm going to call out to God. Peter but with a very quick call out to God. As he's sinking, this is well known as the fastest prayer in the Bible. Lord save me. And Jesus was fast. He reached right out and grabbed him. We have a picture of that right up there on the wall. This moment. This moment. This moment is yours. It's ours. You cry out to Jesus and he does what? He catches you. He pulls you up. Now look what happens. Yes, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? I just you could read that as a real condemning, but I don't think it was. I think it was it was compassionate. It's like, why did you doubt? Why do you turn away from me? Why do you let the world sweep you up? Why do you fall into sin? We have all these reasons to trust the all-powerful, loving, righteous King Jesus, who is always there. We don't need to wander. And this passage's climax is here right now with what this has all been leading up to. The, the disbelief of, of the family and the relationships that we have, the disbelief of the public sector, and then the growing faith that we, that we start having as we see God work all the way up to this moment right here. We arrive at worshiping the king. As they get back into the boat, verse 32 and 33, we see this. This is the conclusion climax and when they got into the boat the wind ceased and those in the boat worshipped him let's meditate on this those in the boat worshipped him saying truly you are the son of God they worshipped him he is he is God he is with us he is the only one worthy of our worship, and they worshiped him. And so the worship team is going to come up right now at this point, and they're going to lead us in worship, a response of worshiping our king. And as they come, I just want to read a little bit from our church's vision description. We came up with a vision statement. Worship the king, mature as family and engage the world. One flow They flow out of each other. Under worship the king, I just want you to hear how we Establish what worshiping the king is. Our document, our official document, says we, Community Grace, will grow in grace and knowledge, pursue a growing relationship with God, praise him passionately, celebrate who he is and what he has done, and become known for our generosity as his worshipers. Amen? We define worship as the active response of a Christ follower, To who God is and what he does. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Worship is accomplished in the life of a believer when submitting one's whole self to God. To worship God is the reason humans exist. And so our next step today, two weeks from Easter, is to do this. Prepare to celebrate Jesus' resurrection and pray for others. My my question is, have you trusted Jesus as your Savior and been brought to life in him? and filled with all this access to worship, to his power. If you have not, today could be the day of your salvation. Everybody else, let's stand. Let's worship in singing. After this, we'll worship in giving, and then in fellowship, and then praying at the concert of prayer, and then inviting the whole world to come here about Jesus.